Today's reading comes from Matthew verse, um, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Jonathan. I am one of the elders at this church, and uh, it's my privilege to be able to uh, bring the word to you this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I am humbled at this opportunity to be able to to um, expound on your word and to um, bring it to your church this morning. Uh, but Father, at the same time, I am confident that this task that you have appointed me to do, that you are with me, that you will fill me with the Holy Spirit, and that it is your spirit that will minister to your people. And so I pray that you would, you would open the ears of our heart, the eyes of our heart, that we may see what you have written, what you have revealed to us in your word, and that you would help us to apply it to our hearts and to our lives in very practical ways. Father, I pray uh, that your spirit would both convict us and encourage us, just as you have done with my heart this this week as I've been preparing this. Um, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two courtroom scenes over the last two years that have made very significant headlines. The first was a much-anticipated and powerful victim impact statement by uh, a lady named Rachel Den Hollander, a former USAG gymnast turned attorney and advocate. She testified of her horrific sexual abuse under former U.S. Olympic team doctor Larry Nasser. Nasser sexually abused more than 250 young women over the course of his career, all under the guise of necessary medical treatment. The second case involved a white Texas policewoman named Amber Geiger, who shot dead a guy named Botham Jean, a black man whom she thought was an intruder in her apartment, when in fact she was the one that was mistakenly in his apartment having gotten off at the wrong floor in her complex. At her sentencing, Brant Jean, Botham's brother, was called to give an impact statement. Now, impact statements bring to light the full hurt and impact of a particular crime. In the world's eyes and sense of justice, these statements bring public shame upon the perpetrators, kind of a last hurrah, 
perhaps a chance to express their contempt before the condemned are left to rot in prison. And yet, what made these two cases particularly unique was that both Den Hollander and Jean used their statements to bring about something completely unexpected. Instead of merely expressing the wrongs their enemies had done, they used their statements to express an uncommon love. The love of someone who has been transformed from the inside out by Jesus Christ. Den Hollander spoke of the evil done by Nasser in unquenching detail. She spoke of justice and the law. She spoke at length about the value of young women, about the abuse, both systemic and specific. Her resounding refrain was, how much is a little girl worth? But in an unexpected twist, she turned to Larry, her abuser, directly and offered him this, quote, you chose to pursue your wickedness no matter what it costs others, and the opposite of what you have done is for me to choose to love sacrificially no matter what it costs me. The definition of sacrificial love portrayed is God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit, and by his grace, I too choose to love this way. In Amber's manslaughter trial, Brant Jean offered this. I'm not going to say, I hope you rot and die. I personally want the best for you, because I know that's exactly what both of them would want. And the best would be, give your life to Christ. I love you as a person. I don't wish anything bad on you. Jean then proceeded to beg the judge for the opportunity to hug Amber. You can actually look it up on YouTube if you'd really like. In this heart-wrenching scene that would make even the most stoic shed tears, Brandt walked over and hugged and forgave Amber, demonstrating his love for the careless, distracted policewoman who shot and killed his younger brother. Both of these scenes made headlines not only because of the high stakes that were surrounding the trials, but because the victims scandalously displayed the stark contrast between the realities of the kingdom of heaven and our earthly kingdom. They chose to extend love to the perpetrators in a way that the world simply cannot understand. To the world, it seems completely foreign, completely abnormal. Why would someone do this? And it seems like the hardest thing to do. And yet for the person who belongs to the kingdom of heaven, it is the most natural thing to do. 
This contrast permeates throughout the Sermon on the Mount. We've been in this series now for many, many weeks. You may recall that Jesus began with the Beatitudes. As Jesus spoke these words, describing this completely upside-down life, he was, in essence, declaring or inaugurating this new kingdom where God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And almost immediately, we can see the contrast. Jesus extends a gracious invitation. But this tension builds as the kingdom of heaven breaks into the kingdom on earth. So revolutionary were Jesus' words that the scribes and the Pharisees wondered if Jesus was abandoning this old order. Those who thought they were in the kingdom of heaven felt challenged. What about the Ten Commandments, Jesus? What about the laws and the prophets? And so in chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, you may recall Jesus addresses these concerns head on, declaring that he has not come to abolish, but to fulfill it. Now, Jesus fulfilled it, of course, by obeying the law perfectly. Because of his perfect righteousness, he is uniquely qualified to atone for our sin. Yes, we know that. But there's more. Jesus also fulfills the law perfectly because he loved perfectly. He didn't just cross all his T's and dot all his I's. He had a new kingdom heart. One that loved the Father with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind. One that desires to love as the Father loves. One that embodies the law as love. Romans 13 verse 10 says that love is the fulfilling of the law. And he invites us to do the same. One passage this morning, in, or, sorry, our passage this morning actually includes a concluding verse in verse 48 that summarizes this entire section from verse 17 all the way down to verse 47. And it is the aim of my sermon. That verse says this, You, therefore, must be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. Now, you may hear that and go, well, that sounds like a very hard thing to do. While perfect sounds like a command to attain all of the moral perfections of God, which is clearly impossible. The, the original word, teleos, refers not to moral perfection, but to wholeness of being. Another way to say this is maturity or fruition. If I plant a tree, the teleos of it would be that you receive this ripe fruit. God desires his people to be wholehearted people, mind, body, and soul. He desires for his people to be rightly oriented, rightly oriented toward his kingdom. He invites us to do the same not by striving for moral perfection, but to accept his gracious invitation to abide in him, 
to trust in him, to receive the power of his kingdom so that so that you will love like him naturally in a way that will contrast so drastically with the world so that your love will prove that you are a child of God. Did you get that? Because that's very important. (laughs) He wants us not to strive for moral perfection, but to accept his gracious invitation to abide, to trust, to receive the power in him, so that you will love naturally, so that you will contrast with our world so that your love will prove that you are a child of God. Here's my outline this morning. First, I'll talk about the old kingdom, so to speak, uh, when Jesus said, you have heard that it was said. Then I'll talk about the new kingdom, but I say to you. And third, I'll talk about the invitation and its implications. So you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, then the Invitation and implications. So first, you have heard that it was said. This is starting to get to be a repeating refrain, isn't it? This is the sixth illustration. And it's interesting to note that in this sixth illustration, this is the only one that includes something in the you have heard that it was said section that is not actually in the Old Testament. While Leviticus 19.18 does say you shall not uh, take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Nowhere are the words hate your enemy found. Rather, it was an accepted interpretation. In Jesus' day, the prevailing rabbinic uh, wisdom was that love your neighbor simultaneously meant hate the one who is not your neighbor. And so this interpretation was not foreign in Old Testament culture. There was this keen sense that the people of God were set apart by God. And so if you're set apart, there is this apartness. We can see how they would have interpreted it this way. Consider, for example, the many ways that that David um, prayed against his enemies in the Psalms. Those Psalms that we call the imprecatory Psalms. Or consider the ways that uh, the people of Israel fought against their enemies. How the Israelites sought to be different. How many sought to be pious. To add way, Jesus' contemporary political context of Roman occupation, of Roman oppression, of the Jewish people would have been a backdrop as well. Brandt talked about some of the outworkings of this last week. The forced labor the treatment as second-class people, not to mention the collection of taxes for the oppressors. You know, life was not pretty in occupied Israel, and the keen sense of us versus them seemed very prevalent. Some in the day, like the Essenes and the Zealots, took this to an extreme. The Essenes, for instance, demonstrated a hatred toward any people that were outside the covenant. And the Zealots took to active disruption of the ruling Romans, a direct form of hatred. Maybe in our modern day, you get a kind of a taste of this cultural dynamic 
If you were to ask, say, an ex-Muslim about the experience of being disowned by one's own family and treated as if they were an enemy, you are no longer part of us when they found Christ. You see, the twisting of the law here was that neighbor, the word neighbor, became very loosely defined and self-justifiable. The parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, 25-37, which I have up on the screen, illustrates this well. This parable is prefaced by a Jewish lawyer seeking to self-justify by limiting who he called his neighbor. He asked Jesus this question, right? He said, he thought it was clever. He said, well, who is my neighbor if I am to love my neighbor as myself? And consider Jesus' admonitions in verse 46 of our text here. For if you love those who love you, and verse 47, and if you greet only your brothers. In other words, the people of the day tended to define neighbor as people who were like them, whom they liked. I like hanging around my buds, and so I will love those who are like me. Of course, here in the 21st century, in Vancouver, Kitsilano, we are a much more civilized, tolerant people, right? We've evolved to be this people where hatred is frowned upon. And so we're nothing like the people in, the, in, Ju- in Jesus' day, are we? Before we get too self-righteous about this, think about your own interactions. Do we not secretly, also personally, corporately, nationally, have an increasing sense of us versus them? Do we not naturally want to gravitate toward people who we love, who are like us, instead of moving toward people who are not? Do we tend to greet only those that are within our circles, of circle of friends at church. One just has to look at some of the responses to this COVID-19 crisis, or maybe even the recent Hong Kong uprisings to see the dynamic play out in real time. Or we might look to the political murmurings down south. Shall we make America great again? But even as we ponder that, don't we pride ourselves as Canadians that we are not like them? Is not the populism of the day a tendency towards self-preservation of loving our neighbor and hating our enemy? Jesus, of course, calls us to a greater righteousness. He says, but I say to you, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And in so doing, he once again turns our our understanding completely upside down. You see, by saying this, he was not merely calling us to this kind of dogmatic, duty-bound toleration of one another. Isn't that an ever-popular word, toleration? We are not merely to tolerate those who are not like us, who don't share our values. No, he calls us 
to positively and sacrificially love them, to pray for them. In other words, Jesus turns this implicit question of who then is my neighbor to whose neighbor am I? This whole relationship to the action has changed from mere toleration to one of active love. We are to be a neighbor to our enemies. We are to extend the radical hospitality that is found in Jesus Christ. Let me paint another picture. If the Sermon on the Mount describes the heralding or the invitation or the invasion, sorry, of the kingdom of heaven here on earth, one where Jesus is king, he certainly leads this charge in a most unconventional way, doesn't he? Just think about it. How contrary this type of invasion is to the shock and awe or carpet-bombing tactics of warfare today. Instead of vanquishing his enemies, God demonstrates his mercy and his grace toward those who oppose him. He does so first in a general way. Verse 45 says that he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He is a God that dispenses his common grace to all of us, even if we do not deserve it. But he also demonstrates this in a very specific way toward his people. He sent his son Jesus, the King of kings, not to kill and to destroy, but to conquer by his love. He came as the servant king. He spared his anger from us. Despite our adultery, he took us as his bride, betrothing himself to us. Despite our manipulative words, our manipulation, he carried out his word, even to the point of going to the cross to die for us. Despite being despised and rejected, he did not retaliate, but more so, he loved us. He loved us by dying for us. Romans 5, verses 6 through 10. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. He loved us by giving his life and by transforming us. Colossians 1.22 He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. 
He truly loved those who were once his enemies by giving them faith, by giving them hope and love in order that they might be transformed into citizens of heaven. You know, we see this tangibly demonstrated in Jesus' ministry, don't we? He loved the tax collector Matthew, the author of this book. He loved the Roman centurion in Matthew 8, verses 5 through 13, by healing his servant from afar. He showed his love toward prostitutes. He loved sinners. He loves you and me. And to each that he loved, he gave faith, hope, and love, knowing that love would ultimately be what lasts. Love is ultimately what will conquer and bring into being God's will on earth. Throughout history, many have responded to Jesus' call in this way. Consider Paul, the Apostle Paul, who despite being imprisoned, ministered the gospel to his guards. Consider missionaries like Adoniram Judson, missionary to the Burmese people, who despite much hostility from the people, loved them like Christ did. Or Jim Elliot, who was ultimately killed by those whom he tried to love, but whose tribe eventually came to know Jesus. One such person in recent times is Mosab Youssef, author of this book called Son of Hamas. Mosab was born the son of a Hamas leader. He was quickly inducted into this world of terror for the cause of Hamas and the Palestinian people. And not surprisingly, he became the target of Israel. Particularly, the Secret Service, Shin Bet, whose clandestine operations sought to turn him against his own people. And yet it was the profound words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48, that ultimately distilled the hostilities in his heart. He writes this, says, and I quote, For years I had struggled to know who my enemy was. I had looked for enemies outside of Islam and Palestine, but I suddenly realized that the Israelis were not my enemies. Neither was Hamas, nor my uncle Ibrahim, nor the kid who beat me with the butt of his M16, nor the ape-like guard in the detention center. I saw that Enemies were not defined by nationality, religion, or color. I understood that we all share the same common enemies. Greed, pride, and all the bad ideas and the darkness of the devil that lives inside us. And that meant I could love anyone. The only real enemy was the enemy inside me. In a later portion of the book, he writes this. He says, I asked myself what Palestinians would do if Israel disappeared, if everything only went back to the way it was before 1948, before Israel invaded. 
But, sorry, <laughs> but if all the Jewish people even abandoned the Holy Land and were scattered all again, and for the first time I knew the answer, we would still fight over nothing, over a girl without a headscarf, over who was the toughest and most important, over who would make the rules and who would get the best seat. You see, Musab understood something about this passage that I think many of us miss. While the application of this passage could be that we ought to love our enemies, Jesus is not saying that we ought to just try harder to love them on our own terms. We can't just try harder to, well, I gotta, Jesus said I've got to do it, so I'm going to love my enemies, even though I'm going to grin and bear it and not really like it. He's saying that we must realize that the true enemy is our hard hearts. What we need is neither to legalistically try to justify who are our neighbors and, and who are our enemies, nor is it to tolerate anyone and everyone. Rather, it implicitly implores us to daily put our trust in the one who has loved those who were once his enemies, but are now his brothers and sisters. I'm going to repeat that. We are to daily trust in the one who has loved those who were once his enemies, that's us, but are now his brothers and sisters. That is how we can love our enemies. If we die to ourselves, our old hearts must die and be renewed with a new heart, one that is alive in Jesus Christ. And we will all be tested in this regard. I have been tested, and I am sure you have been tested. I know many of your stories. I recognize, particularly as a biblical counselor, that we all come from situations of hurt, of persecution, of betrayal. For some in this room, particularly if you're younger, maybe your enemy might just be your baby brother or sister who is just oh so annoying and keeps bothering you. For others, we may be talking about bullies at school or the towering boss at work or a demanding co-worker who never seems to pull their weight. Still others, it may have been someone who has gravely, gravely sinned against you through anger, adultery, manipulation, or abuse. There's significant water under the bridge. And then there are, of course, those who have faced real persecution. I know there are some of you in here as well, where the possibility of being arrested or killed for the sake of your faith in Christ was very real. I know Many of you have experienced all of these situations 
how do people like Rachel Den Hollander, who suffered years of abuse from someone whom she should have been able to trust, how does she love her enemies? How does one trust again amidst a system that seems to refuse to listen? How does Brant Jean's family love amidst the aftermath of such a careless act that had such grave consequences in a society that continues to propagate racial stereotypes? But you see, Christ City, the answer is not dependent upon how trying your circumstances are. The answer is not dependent upon how trying your circumstances are. It is dependent upon how great a Savior we have. He is a Savior that offers by His grace to so permeate you with His love as you offer up the one who has hurt you, as you pray for the one who is persecuting you, that it would seem completely abnormal to act any other way. In his book, The Divine Conspiracy, author Dallas Willard puts it this way. He says, It is very hard indeed if you have not been substantially transformed in the depths of your being, in the intricacies of your thoughts, your feelings, your assurances and dispositions in such a way that you are permeated with love. Once that happens, then it is not hard. What would be hard is to act the way that you acted before. Jesus will later say in Matthew chapter 7, verses 16 through 18, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Today's passage is a great diagnostic, isn't it? Because it forces us to ask ourselves whether we are truly in the new kingdom, whether we are truly of the good tree, or whether we have just taken fruit from the good tree and stapled it onto our bad tree. Are we truly loving God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind? Are you being a present means of bringing about the kingdom of heaven here on earth by your love? Is your heart bearing fruit in such a way that you find your heart being challenged, changed as a result? The call isn't to be morally perfect, remember? But the call is for us to abide, to be faithful do you find that your love is being shaped increasingly by the love of Christ? Are you increasingly patient and kind, devoid of envy or boasting, humble, amenable, not irritable or resentful? Is your heart increasingly rejoicing with the truth? 
Does your love bear all things? Does it trust? Does it hope? Does it endure? If you're convicted this morning like I am, if not, will you entrust yourself to the one who can help you? Will you stop resisting his will? Will you repent and believe? Or perhaps this morning you're encouraged. You see the progress that the Lord has been working in your heart. Then give praise. Take heart that Jesus is leading you to maturity. And it's on that note that I want to conclude. You see, there's a sense that Jesus is calling us to be perfect. Remember, that means mature or whole. That that call is to be individually mature. And certainly that is the case. But there is also a call in this context of his inaugurating this new kingdom that he is calling his people to fulfill their appointed goal or their destiny. That they are perfect in the sense of being brought to a rightful end. And the rightful end is that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we know that in the new heavens and the new earth, at the end of time, this will be the case. In the new kingdom, the law is completely fulfilled. Every iota, every dot, every T that's crossed will happen. In fact, what seems normal here on earth will seem completely foreign. It will be normal when kingdom subjects walk around fulfilling all of the Ten Commandments. It will seem abnormal to be angry with our brother and sister. It will seem abnormal to look at a woman with lustful intent. Like, why would you do that? It would seem abnormal to separate what God has put together. Our speech will be free of manipulation. It would be abnormal otherwise. It would be abnormal not to love our enemies. There will be a time when obeying the Ten Commandments, for instance, will seem as natural as our trust in the laws of physics. No longer will we uh, think of laws as our speeding laws. You know, kind of a good rule, but you know, most people just break it all the time. Laws will simply mean that's the way it is. Laws will simply mean that's the way something functions. For example, the law of gravity. We will love in the truest and fullest sense, as surely as we know that if I drop this book, it will fall to the stage and it won't go falling off. It won't go floating off into, into midair because we know and trust that the law of gravity holds true. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Love never ends.
Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may our whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely come.